Well, you can join me in opening your Bibles to the book of 1 John. So we're taking a short break from our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. So you can turn to 1 John chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible with you, please grab one under a seat nearby. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that one with you. We'd love for you to have that as a gift um, and read it on your own. So we'll be working through a profound paragraph from the Bible um, this morning. So our series this summer is called Overflowing Generosity. It's about how we receive and extend the generous grace of God. Now when we talk about the generosity of God, we're not talking about merely His provision of certain material wealth and blessings. We're, we're talking about who he is. We're talking about his self-giving nature. So when you think of the generosity of God, think of how it's natural for him to spread goodness and grace. One of the things that the English Puritans has helped me see that God is like a fountain of life and love. Now, the Puritans get just this terrible rap for being anti-joy. Um, you know, that, that a Puritan is someone who has this suspicion somewhere that someone out there might be having joy, and we've got to stop that, right? Um, in my experience, it is the absolute complete opposite. I am sure plenty of them, and you can find plenty of examples, and English classes in America the past few decades have done a great job highlighting the text that promote that narrative. Um, but uh, the best of these English Puritan men and women and pastors and authors um, were filled with joy because they knew something of the nature of God that we often neglect. So they've helped me see that God is like a fountain of love. We read that text earlier this morning already from Psalm 36. It said, God is a fountain of life and from him flow a river of delights and joys. And so the Puritans would talk often about how God is like a fountain that overflows with grace, and then we are like vessels or cups that receive that, are filled up, and then overflow from his fullness to spread it further. So God has, as the Puritan Richard Sibbs put it, a spreading goodness. It's why he created. He didn't create because he needed anything. He has the fullness of life in himself, but he, he has a goodness that is so great it spreads, and that's why he created, so he could share his goodness uh, with us. And lest we suspect that this is in any way begrudging in God, Sibs also said that God is more willing to give us good than we are to ask of it. In other words, he is more eager to bless us than we are to even receive and want those blessings. He's like a spring that bubbles up and spills out kindness. Or I think of it like this, God's grace and love flow from him, like I mentioned earlier, like Niagara Falls, it's, it's flowing from him, and then our job is to take a cup and hold it up, and we're empty in ourselves, but we receive from him, and there is no lack, and it keeps coming, and we're filled, and then we get filled as we receive his grace in order to overflow toward others and spread his goodness further, and this is relevant to every moment of your life and my life. Because when we talk about generosity, of course we include 
money. But the biblical vision of generosity is much bigger than just money. We are called to be generous with our whole selves and in all of life. And this is because of who God is and how he treats us and how he's generous toward us. So in this series, what we're going to do is take a pause from the Gospel of Mark for about a month and a half, and we're going to consider the generosity of God and how we receive it and then extend it to others. So in this series, we'll see how God generously welcomes us and serves us and gives to us. He generously comforts us in our need. And he generously brings his grace and goodness in the gospel message to us. And then in response, we receive all of this. And then we now, from the fullness that he gives us, we overflow to spread that to others. So we now welcome one another with the welcome Christ gives us. We now serve one another out of the service that he's given us. We now give financially to others because he has blessed us with everything that we have. We now comfort others in their need with the comfort with which we've received from God. We now take the gospel to share it with others because he's been so kind to bring it to us through others. And in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12, we see how this happens better than any other text I know of in the Bible. So if you are using one of the Bibles under chairs nearby you and you haven't found it yet, it's on page 1023. Let's read it together. Beloved, or loved ones, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your word that we just read. And we know there are ocean depths here that don't have a bottom. And so we pray that you would take us into this, these deep waters so that we can understand you rightly, we can be filled with your love, and we can overflow toward others, and that you would change the world through what you even do in this time together. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this text answers one important question. Why are we to live generous lives of love? So we're supposed to love if you were here recently on Sunday morning, that was the focus of a message. Jesus says the greatest commandments, love God, love others, clear. Why should we love? And why should we live lives of generous love? And this text gives us three answers to that question. We love because God is love, because he loved us in Jesus, and because he now loves through us. 
So we can picture this with the image of a fountain. We're to love others because God is a fountain of love, because he has poured out his love to us through Jesus and filled us with this love, and then he, he now leads us to overflow to love others with his very love. So let's use this image here to walk through these three answers in the text. We see the fountain, the filling, and the overflow. So first, the fountain. So the first reason why we're called to love others, which is the main command in this text, repeated several times, love one another. The first reason why we're called to love is because God is the source of love. He's not a source of love. He is the source of love. Two profound phrases in verses 7 to 8 here make this clear. The first one is, love is from God. Do you see that in verse 7? Beloved or loved ones, let us love one another. Why? Why should we love one another? First answer, for love is from God. So why are we called to love one another? Why should Christians seek to live lives of generous, self-giving love and sacrifice for others? Because the God that we know... If you're a believer, you've come to know the one true God. That God that you have come to know is the very source of love. Now, our culture loves love, but it doesn't know where it come, came from. Our culture is going to shift, it seems, more and more secular and post-Christian, and it's going to have an increasingly hard time with this because it will continue to value love, but it will be unable to provide a good rational reason for why love actually should be valued just so highly. It will speak of it as though it's transcendent, but will not have an explanation for where it comes from or how it could be transcendent. If we're just part of an evolving material world, then why does love even ultimately matter? Is it not perhaps just a feeling that a couple mammals ended up feeling toward one another at some point in history because it proved beneficial? But Verse 7 says, the love in our world matters, and we know it matters, but it matters because it's from God. He is the fountain of love that overflowed to create a world where love matters. So that's the first statement. Love is from God. Now the second is God is love, and this is in verse 8. Do you see it there? He says, God is love. So God didn't just think up the idea of love. And then give it to the world. He didn't just begin loving when he created the world. No, love matters because love is who God is. Love is at the very heart of ultimate reality. So God is not a solitary being. He's not lonely and isolated and aloof. No, God has always enjoyed an eternal fellowship of love. So the God of the Bible is a triune God. One God who eternally exists in a triune fellowship of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, there's obviously mystery here, and we can, we can tend to avoid thinking deeply about the doctrine of the Trinity because it's hard to understand, right? One God eternally existing in three persons. But the truth is, I wonder if God seems dull to you. It may be because you are probably missing the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, the more we understand the triune nature of God, the more worship can be kindled in you. Because God's triune nature is not just a math problem to be solved, 
right? One plus one plus one equals one or something like this. It's not just for theology nerds. It's the very reason why God is known to be a God of infinite joy and love. So ultimate reality is not an empty void. It's a father, son, and spirit enjoying an eternal fellowship of, and love. So there's one author that's helped me in recent years understand and enjoy this more than uh, anyone else. His name's Michael Reeves. I've recommended his book, Delighting in the Trinity, before. We have that at the resource corner. I know some of you have read it. Um, and he likes to ask this question in, in that book and other, uh, other, other of his writings. He asked this question, what do you think God was doing before creation? That tells you a lot about your view of God. What do you think he was doing before creation, before you were around, before anything else was around? Well, Jesus answers that question. He tells us what God was doing before creation. He tells us at the end of his high priestly prayer. We, we overhear him give the answer in his prayer to the Father just before he was crucified at this high priestly prayer in John 17 verse 24 he prays this he says father you loved me before the creation of the world so before there was anything else there was this reality there was the father loving the son in the spirit and the son loving the father in the spirit and this is why we don't just say that God loves, but we can say that God is love. God is love because God is a trinity. And therefore, he's the origin and the source of all love. So here are the two profound statements. Love is from God. God is love. And this is why the image of God as a fountain is so fitting. He's the source of love, like a fountain or a spring is the source of life-giving water to us. The Puritans love to talk about God this way. I've mentioned that the elders are slowly reading through the 1689 Baptist Confession, which is essentially just the Westminster Confession adapted for those with Baptist practice. And when these confessions refer to God, they call him the fountain of all being. And the English Puritan John Flavel preached a series of 42 sermons on the greatness of Jesus. I think as he called it, the excellency of Christ. And he titled all those 42 sermons, he titled that series, The Fountain of Life. And the Apostle John says, this is why we should love one another. Look at what he says here again in verses 7 to 8. So those two statements we read are kind of bracketing and bookending, verses 7 and 8. And in between, notice he says two things are true of those who love God. Who have been, they've been born of God and they know God. So he says this, let us love one another. Why? Because love is from God and whoever loves, two things are true of them. He's been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. So love, practical love flowing through you to other people is the evidence that you are actually a real Christian. It's the evidence that you know God, the God of love. It's the evidence that you've been born of God, like child, like father. He makes you like himself. He gives you a new heart, puts his loving nature 
into you, cultivates that into you. And so we're given a new heart. We're now, we now truly know God. And John is saying these are the people who love one another because the God of love has caused them to be born again. And he's brought them into a relationship with himself. So if you are a Christian, you've been born again. That's true of you. And you know this God of love. That's true of you. You can't be a Christian without those two things being true of you. You've been born again, given a new heart. Regeneration, theological term for it. And you know God. You've been brought, I mean, Jesus even said, this is eternal life, that, you, that we know the Father and the Son. So that's true of you. And that means you will necessarily become increasingly loving. Not perfect overnight, but progressively over a lifetime. And if you don't, if you refuse to be generous and self-giving toward others, it shows that you do not actually know this God. You've not actually been born again. You're not actually a Christian. So if you want to become generous and loving, don't misunderstand. The answer is not to just try hard to love and say, okay, I need to try hard to love because then I'll become a Christian. No, not that at all. You get it by this God giving you a new heart. You get it by becoming a Christian. You get this love by getting to know this generous God. So this blows up the idea that there's some kind of, I mean, everything we've been saying the past few minutes here, blows up the idea that there's some kind of big chasm between theology and practice or practical living. Have you heard the sentiment that, you know, says something like, well, we don't need doctrine. We don't need theology like the Trinity. That's irrelevant. What we need is practical advice for living life. Now, you know I love false dichotomies. Um, the response is, yes, we need both, and at the same time, because the more we know the triune God of love, the more practically loving and generous we will actually be in everyday life. So this is the first reason why we love, because we have come to know the fountain of love. So first, the fountain. Now, second, the filling. God is a fountain of generous love, and he fills us with his love through Jesus. Look at verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. So here's where God reveals his love. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. So God has revealed or made manifest in this language here uh, his love to us in two ways. And so with the image of, the fountain, of a fountain, we can say he's caused his love to flow toward us in two ways. First, in sending his son. So he says that God's love is shown in sending Jesus to the world that we might live through him. So this is self-giving. This is the nature of love. God the Father sending God the Son sent on a mission of life-giving love. So when people looked at Jesus, they were seeing a revelation of God's love. They were seeing love incarnate. The second way we see God's love is at the cross. So this is how the fountain of God's love flows into our world to fill us. It's through the cross. This is where Jesus came to give his life for us in selfless love. So look again at verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us 
and sent his son, not just in general, but sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the word propitiation refers to absorbing or averting the wrath of God. And it happens through sacrifice. So Jesus died as a willing sacrifice, and he came for this purpose, to receive the death that we deserve so that we can share in the life that we don't deserve. It's interesting that John uses the word propitiation here to talk about the love of God, right? I mean, if you just add, if you just scan this whole paragraph, you'll see the word love and the word God repeated over and over and over and over. I mean, it's just every phrase, multiple times. And then right in the middle of this text, in the love of God, you have this word propitiation. Uh, That word became pretty unpopular in some theological circles in the last century. And the reason is because it pictures an angry God. It assumes that God has anger and wrath and that he judges sinners with death, eternal death. And so a lot of liberal theologians didn't like that word because it says that God has wrath toward people. But do you see what John is showing us here? Yes, God does have anger and wrath toward sinners, and it's because he's just. But look what triumphs for his people. It's his love. So propitiation is a word that shows actually not just God's wrath, but it actually tells us something of God's love when we see the cross. Because we see not only God's justice against sin, giving a just judgment, but we see his love in Christ taking that judgment for us so that we don't have to. So the cross is where we see God's anger against sin. We see just how horrible sin is. It's no flippant, trivial thing. Took the death of Jesus to pay for it. And yet we also see at the same time this great love for sinners. So God could have unleashed a flood of judgment upon us, just like he did in Noah's day. He could have just flooded the world with judgment, but Jesus took that flood of wrath so that we could receive this fountain overflowing in a flood of mercy. So Jesus, we could say, drained the cup of God's wrath so that we could be filled with his love. So God's love floods the world through the sending of Jesus and the cross of Jesus. Now, you may be thinking, but how do I experience this personally? And the answer is by receiving Jesus as the one who was sent for you, and who died for you, receiving what you see here. The Gospel of John in verses, um, in the first chapter, verse 16, John says this of Jesus. He said that Jesus is full of grace and truth. And then he said this, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So in Jesus, we see the fullness of grace, and then from his fullness, we receive grace upon grace. So the very first moment you receive this grace and this love is when you first trust in Christ. He set his love and affection upon you from eternity past and when he chooses people for salvation. But the first moment you experience that in your life savingly is when you receive the fullness of grace from him. So here's how the Apostle Paul spoke about his own conversion experience. So this man who went on to write much of the New Testament here often refers back to that moment when he first came to receive the grace of Jesus. Here's how he says it in 1 Timothy 1.14, one of my favorite 
verses in the New Testament. He says, the grace of our Lord. So remember, Jesus is full of grace. From his fullness, we receive grace. Paul says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Do you hear the fountain imagery there? The grace of Jesus is like a fountain. And he said, it overflowed for me. And as I understand what he's saying there too, in context, he's saying it it overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That is, it created that in me. The grace of Jesus overflowed toward me and then produced in me faith and love. So receiving the grace fills us to overflow. Thomas Goodwin, my favorite uh, Puritan pastor, said this about Paul's description of salvation. I was just reading through, I usually read just a couple pages of some of his sermons in the mornings, and um, just last week, I came across two of my new favorite pages um, of his writings, and it was very relevant for this sermon, so I can't help myself but include it. So he was describing Paul's conversion in this very statement that I just read, and he comp- he's saying that Paul compares God to a fountain, and that God overflowed with grace toward him, and then he said this, that you can read it along on the screen here, He said, grace gushed out from God's heart as a fountain. And then he said, God's love is like a river or a spring that runs underground and has done so from eternity. Where does it spring up first? Where does this fountain begin to bubble up or issue forth? Here's the answer. When a person is first called, and that's with the the effectual gospel call, when God calls someone to be saved in a way that brings it about in their life. When a person is first called, then that love that has run from everlasting underground and through the heart of Christ upon the cross breaks out in a person's own heart too. And then he says, God is a full fountain. His love and mercy gush out upon a person when he calls and converts him. So the source of God's everlasting love, and it it comes from him. The source is his everlasting love, and then he aims that love on sinners that don't deserve it, on us. He aims it at us when he first chooses us from everlasting. And then this love flows through the heart of Christ on the cross, where John just said we see it revealed as he dies as a propitiation for our sins, and he gives himself up for us in love. And then it comes into our lived experience when he saves us. And Goodwin's saying it breaks out upon our hearts. And this, John is saying, is why Christians love each other. Verse 11 is the point. Beloved, loved ones, he keeps saying, those who are loved by God. If God so loved us, right, if this is the kind of God that exists and this is the kind of God that loves us and he's loved us in this way, from eternity, bursting through the heart of Christ and the cross and then gushing out onto us at conversion and beyond forever. If God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In other words, if God loves you like this, then how can you not love others? If God loves us like this, how can we not be generous in life? 
How can we go back to living a life of self-centered stinginess? How can we hoard and be stingy with our things? How can we be stingy with our encouragement and withhold life-giving words of blessing to other people? So this leads us to the final movement here. The fountain, the filling, and now the overflow in our lives. So God fills us so that we would overflow with love for others. But there's another surprise here. This love that's created in us that we're filled with to overflow is perhaps more profound than we may realize. Look at verse 12 where all of this is heading. And just read this carefully with me. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So think about this. Why did he say here, no one's ever seen God? What does that have to do with anything here? It seems totally unexpected. By the way, no one's ever seen God, okay? Well, John actually said this one other time before, and it helps us understand what's going on here. He said this at the beginning of the Gospel of John. He said that no one's ever seen God, and then he goes on to say, but Jesus has now made him known. So no one's ever seen God, yet God reveals himself in Jesus. You see Jesus, you see the Father, as Jesus said over and over. So Jesus reveals God. Now he's saying it again here in 1 John 4. He says, no one's ever seen God. Well, why? Because there's another way that we can see God, that God makes himself known. No one has seen God, and yet God can be seen when you, Christian, love another Christian and love another person. No one's ever seen God, but God reveals himself. God is seen when someone enters into a community of believers where love is thick between them. God is seen there. I mean, look again what he's saying here. No one has ever seen God. Just look at the the progression here. If we love one another, God abides in us. He dwells and remains in us. And his love is perfected or completed in us. So when Christians love one another, it shows that the God who is love is dwelling in them and his very love is being brought to complete expression through them and being perfected in them. In other words, the world can see God in our love because it's God's love working in and through us as we love. So the fountain of love that fills us is the fountain that then fills us to overflow and that very love is overflowing through us. Do you see how relevant this is to inspiring us to treat one another well? I mean, maybe you feel at times this great burden to love other people in all the practical ways that God's Word calls us to do that. Maybe you feel like you're just never good enough. Or you feel like you always fail. Or maybe you feel like you're doing a fine job of it. You know, yeah, I'm loving people in general, um, but the whole thing kind of seems boring to you. Um, What's the big deal? All this talk about love. But do you see how this reality that we're seeing actually transforms all of this? It means that we don't just love each other because we're told to. 
We certainly don't just give generously out of mere duty. No, the God who is love has loved us in Jesus, and now he is showing his love through us. We can now love out of a fullness of love because he is in us and loving through us. We become generous because the generous God dwells in us and his love is being completed through us. It's filling us to overflow. So this is a category creating kind of text and sermons if you don't have this category yet. So if you're thinking, I'm not sure this makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, I kind of get it, but it sounds pretty odd. If that's you, then this, this category needs to get created in your uh, mind and in your mental space. And so I just encourage you to read this text more this week, memorize it, memorize a few phrases out of it, think about it, meditate on it, on it through the week, read it once every morning this week, talk to people, have conversation at lunch today about this, talk to a friend, talk to your small group about this. Just let this get worked in to your mind and heart. Think through just the, the movement of the three parts here the fountain and the filling and the overflow, and how this works in our lives. So let's wrap up by focusing directly on how to respond to this. There's two main step, step, uh, steps we take here. Not complicated. We receive and we extend. We receive his generosity and then we extend it to others. So first we receive this. Maybe you're hearing this and you're thinking, I don't know about any of this. I never knew God was like this. I've never heard God talked about like this. I certainly didn't think the Puritans talked about God like this. Uh, and I never knew that I could actually live with this kind of what seems to be a freely given, joyful, non-burdensome life of selfless generosity and love. If that's you, then the main message this whole morning for you is the fountain is available. It's available for you. Receive the grace of Jesus. He was sent in the world to save sinners, to die as a propitiation for our sins. And so you receive that he came for you. And he died for you. You receive his forgiveness. You receive his presence by the Holy Spirit and his love and his eternal life. And for those who are already Christians, you, your role, my role, is to keep receiving this love. He is a fountain that keeps giving. So moment by moment, his kindness is there to receive as a gift. And part of this is just seeing what he's giving us. And we're already receiving it, but sometimes we're not even thinking about it, right? Every good gift is from the Father in heaven, right? So you just see every breath you're taking right now. The, your, the eyes that are working, maybe not as well as they used to, but the resurrection's coming. Um, your ears that are hearing, same. Um, all of life right? The sky, the sun that's shining, the people that are, all of this is God's kindness to you, to bless you, and especially seen in Jesus, given for you. You have been sent for. You have been died for. Jesus came for you, so you keep receiving this. Now, as we receive his love, what does it look like to extend it then? And so, let's just think about applying this in terms of concentric circles. So you kind of start with your closest circle and then go outward from there. So we'll consider a few of these. So first, the closest circle around you would be those nearest to you in your everyday life. So those would perhaps be your closest family or friends. And so you're called then to, as you receive this love from God, overflow with generosity toward those who are close to you. So husbands, you're called to love your wives 
as Christ loves the church. And we've just seen how Christ loves the church, like an overflowing fountain of generous, self-giving love. And wives are called to love with this kind of selfless love as well. So, of course, abuse and selfish attitudes have zero place in a world and in a relationship that's filled with this kind of love. Completely out of place. Parents are to give this kind of grace to their children. Sometimes I feel like my kids are draining me. But when that happens, you know what the problem is, right? I'm relying on them to fill me or as if they can take my fullness away. But if I'm filled with God's love, then that's a love that keeps coming and keeps me overflowing. I mean, you, you hold your cup against uh, to Niagara Falls. That, the whole bottom of your cup can actually be empty and leaky, and the cup's still full the whole time because water's surging through it, right? So we just need to give ourselves to know the Lord moment by moment, receiving His grace, enjoying His fellowship of love, and we'll be filled up to give to others around us, students and those who are younger. You're receiving a lot in this season of life. So one of the lessons you can do is just learn to receive this with gratefulness and then let that overflow in generosity toward others in your life. So next concentric circle may be the local church. I think we actually could have made this the first concentric circle because in many ways, when we become Christians, our closest relationships then become uh, those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. But we'll go to this concentric circle now, local church. This text is intended to create a gospel culture of love. I mean, that's the main command in this text. Everything here is said in the service of the command for Christians to love one another. I mean, that's the, the point in 1 John. This um, section here is for Christians to love one another. John's saying the church should be the place on the planet where people can come to experience a love they've never known, a radical love that is from God. And so the fountain has filled his people, so the church, church should be drenched with kindness. I love how we continue that experience after our services here, and that should be the experience before the service. So come early to experience and extend the love of God to one another, and linger longer to extend the love of God to one another. Be filled up with his kindness through this service and then overflow toward one another and then set up times to meet through the week as many of you do and overflow in service and blessing toward one another in the everyday moments and the everyday rhythms of life. Broader circle would be our vocational work. So God has placed you at school or in the workplace or in a home or neighborhood to show his generous love. So the work we do is actually tied into this. It's a way that we're to serve and bless others. So for some of you, you know, as maybe you've learned this lesson before and you realize that when you think of your job not just as a, just as a way to make money or just as a way to just get some things done that you like doing, um, but as a, an extension of God's love in the world, you may not actually change a lot of what you do, but your whole mindset changes and the reason why you do changes, Right? Because you're realizing that what you're doing is part of a bigger picture of blessing and serving and loving other people. And so the more we receive God's generous, generous love, the more we'll want to bless others. And then, of course, with the money that the Lord gives us through vocations and other means, that's then meant to, to spill out and overflow in generosity toward others. This is why Jesus talks about money so much, because what we do with our money is evidence of love because it's a means of loving. You hoard your money, you're not loving. 
You give your money, it's evidence of love and generosity toward others. So if you've not reassessed your own generosity and giving in life toward various ministries or missionaries or organizations that are doing good in the world or our local church and prioritizing our own ministry and mission as a church, then this is a great time to reassess this and think, how tight is your grip on your money or, or is it loose and flowing like the Lord? Another circle outward, just two more here, would be various pressing social needs in our time. So one of the most pressing needs that we've been hearing about this past week uh, is with caring for the unborn. And the fundamental difference in our, our own nation right now, in many nations, is really how we will answer this one question. Do unborn human beings have the right to life? And should they be protected? Or should they be discarded? Can they be discarded? And the Bible and the science of embryology is, they're both clear. These are innocent human beings. And so it's love that drives us to protect them. It's love that drives us to support women and families in need. It's love that moves us to uh, pursue foster care and adoption. It's love that moves us to exhort men to never pressure a woman to get an abortion. It's love that leaves me leads men to stay committed in a relationship, to care and financially provide for children as a father. And so I mentioned in our midweek email a few days ago how we can respond to the overturning of Roe v. Wade. I mean, we are rejoicing in it as a massive step in public justice. And we now enter into a new phase of letting the love we've received from God overflow in love toward those in need, loving the little ones and loving those who need to care for them in hard circumstances. And so it's love that leads us to care for this. It's also love that leads us to care for other pressing social issues. It's love that leads us to denounce racism and pursue ethnic unity. It's love that leads us to seek wise ways to care for immigrants in our land. It's love that leads us to help care for those in poverty. Now, we may make diff different decisions on how to wisely and prudentially do this politically and as a nation, but what motivates us however we're looking to care is love filling us and overflowing through us. Last circle, broadest, would be that love overflows us to live lives on mission. So as we've experienced God's love, we overflow to share it with others. We can't claim to love God and have zero desire to see others come to know this God. The love of God led him to send Jesus to preach the gospel through people and to accomplish our salvation, and now it's love that leads us to spread the gospel to others. So personal evangelism, global missions, um, they're wondrously non-optional because they're just so natural from this, aren't they? If God is a fountain of love and life and light, and he bubbles over in generosity to spread his goodness in the world. And we have received this goodness through Jesus. How odd would it be to just stop there and not then participate in God's love spreading further in the world through us? And so this text moves us to love people, meeting, of course, temporary needs in life but also meeting eternal needs in bringing the gospel to people who need to hear it and inviting them to repent and believe in Jesus because that is turning to the fountain of love and the source of real love that we're all looking for anyways. 
So, God is a fountain of life and love. He overflows to us, he fills us, and then he overflows in the world through us. If this is true, um, every moment of life is different. A potential moment for explosive joy. Um, And it is. Let's pray. Father, we turn to you now open-hearted. Thank you. We praise you for who you are as a fountain of life and love. We thank you for spreading your goodness to create this world and then to rescue us through Jesus. And we pray that you would cause us to continue to receive your love. We pray for anyone here who has never opened themselves up to you to receive your love in Jesus. We pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would cause that to happen even this very moment and that they'd turn to receive Christ. And we pray for all of us that you would continue to fill us to overflow toward one another in these next few minutes, to respond in praise to you in this song, and to live lives of love this week. Pray this in Jesus' name.